Hello, my name is Wayne Sheridan, and I'm a volunteer at CMDA. And I'm Alice Sheridan. I am not only a volunteer, but I worked part-time at CMDA. And when I decided to retire, I realized I believed in this place and I enjoyed being here and working with this staff in such a way that I wanted to continue by being a volunteer. I am very much impressed that CMDA plays a significant role in the medical community in our country these days, and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I'm very happy to come once a week to volunteer in this place. Well, when Alice is so enthusiastic about it and I had retired, I finally decided that one day a week would be worthwhile at such an amazing ministry. So I started coming uh, with her and we have had the benefit of seeing and hearing testimonies really to know what CMDA does to support the health professionals of not just the United States, but the world. And it's impressed us. So we're very committed to our giving of our time here, but also giving financially to this ministry. We believe it is God's ministry, the one that God has chosen to impact the health professional community from students to physicians, practicing dentists, to other health professionals. They need the guidance and the training and the information and the biblical basis that CMDA provides. And we're so glad that they do and to be a part of this. Hi, this is Dr. Mike Chupp, and you're listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Well, that testimony that you just heard reminded me of the saying that some football coach said that the conscripts will always be knocked out of the way by the mercenaries, but the mercenaries don't stand a chance against the volunteers. What a great, powerful testimony. I appreciate so much from Wayne and Alice, whom I get to see once a week here. And uh, I hope you were blessed and inspired like I was with their testimony. Today, I owe a big thank you to many of you that have already responded to help your CMDA claim the $146,000 matching gift. It's going to greatly help us in reaching our $900,000 fiscal year in giving goal. To date, just to update you, we have received $465,000. Wow, that is super encouraging, but we do still have a ways to go to reach that $900,000 goal. If you've been delaying your response, I would be grateful if you just take a few minutes to consider giving your gift today. You can give online by going to cmda.org give, and our stewardship team would love to hear from you if you're considering a special gift of stock or Perhaps you're considering a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA. And I hear that's happening more and more frequently these days. Many thanks for all the prayers and generosity that so many of you, you've already extended to help your CMDA this Christmas season. Well, speaking of Christmas, here we are. Welcome to our special Christmas episode of CMDA Matters. You know, Christmas can oftentimes be a real stretch 
for healthcare workers. I can tell you firsthand, I know how it feels to be separated from my family on Christmas Day. And most of us in healthcare, well, we've spent the holiday away from our families and with patients or colleagues and other hospital staff. For students and residents, well, there just might not be the option to travel home to be with loved ones this year. It can be a lonely time. But God, because we know He is our Savior, He can show up in miraculous ways on Christmas Day in the hospital with His presence and His comfort. For this special episode, we asked a handful of our CMDA members to share their special memories of Christmas on call. Those instances where they actually saw God working miracles and where they experienced His presence in mighty, mighty ways. For our first Christmas on call memory, we've got our GHO director, Dr. Trish Burgess. Prior to joining CMDA, Trish worked as an emergency room physician. So let's listen in as Dr. Burgess shares an experience in the emergency room with the Christmas tree baby. Hi, I'm Dr. Trish Burgess. I am an emergency medicine physician and work here at CMDA as the director of global health outreach. And I wanted to share one of my Christmas stories. Having been in the ER for 23 years, there were about three years that I actually did not have to work Christmas. So I've learned a lot about that. But one of the things I did know is that it's hard to leave your family on a holiday, especially one that's all about or centered around your family. But when you get to work and your coworkers are there, which really are like your work family, and it really isn't so bad once you get there. It's just leaving home that's hard. But my Christmas story actually started three days before Christmas, and I saw this young mom, and she had an eight-month-old baby with her, and um, she was worried because she said the baby had been had just started crawling and she was watching her, but and she was sitting over near the Christmas tree, which was a live tree, and she saw that she had a little piece of Christmas tree nubbin in her hand. And then, of course, what all babies do is she then put that in her mouth. So the mother went dashing over there to get it from her, but by the time she picked the baby up, the nubbin wasn't in her hand anymore. So she was worried and thought that she had swallowed it but wanted to come in and get her checked. And I think she just thought I'd say, oh, she looks just fine. You can go home now and enjoy your holiday for the next three days. And um, But I, I was a little worried about her. There wasn't anything exact, but something that was concerning to me that I think that she actually did probably swallow that or not get it all the way down. And so I recommended, you can't really x-ray that because it's organic and you can't see that, that on an x-ray. So I recommended that she go to the children's hospital. I really thought she needed the pediatric GI doctor scope her to see if they could find that little piece of Christmas tree nubbin, which meant transferring to another hospital. And um, she felt like it was a big ordeal about nothing. But and so she got quite upset about it and um, really was resistant to doing that. But I was really adamant that I think thought we needed to do that at the time. So she wasn't happy about it. But I went out and I started the process where you have the transfer call center nurse call the other hospital and, you know, you have to get all that accepted ahead of time. So while they were working on that, I got a phone call on my portable phone. It was the husband or the the father of this baby. So while I was talking to him, I walked right into the room where the mother was with her baby, and he was demanding to know why, if he w- she was that sick, why wasn't I flying her to the 
Children's Hospital, whereas the mother's upset that I even want her to go somewhere else. And so she even started yelling to her husband while I'm on the phone with him trying to yell to him so he would hear her saying she's a control freak and, you know, just all upset about it. So I just, you know, I, I didn't say anything to her about that, just, you know, that I really felt this was important and, and, you know, the transfer went off just fine. And, you know, we really don't ever hear anything about that once they transfer out of the ER. And so I went into work the next day. So this is now the day before Christmas Eve. And the social worker comes up to me and tells me that this woman called and wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, I know who that is. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think I've got time for that. And it is busy. The holidays are always super busy in the ER. So I was busy on my shift and didn't call her. So then I come in Christmas Eve. And um, the social worker, same social worker, came up and told me, I really think you should call this mom. She really wanted to talk to you. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, I wasn't thrilled to get yelled at or hear, oh, they didn't find anything. You wasted our time or money or whatever. So I called this mom, and she was so kind, so nice, and so grateful. And so I was glad I called her because it was just nice to hear, see this side of her, whereas she was not at all friendly the first time. But she had told me that the GI doctor had scoped her baby the next morning and actually found that little piece of Christmas tree nubbin hovering just over her airway. And she said, I think you saved my baby's life. And I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I apologize for how I acted. And I talked to her about, I knew that it was fear and I knew that it was um, guilt um, we all moms have that. Anytime the littlest thing goes goes wrong with our children, we blame ourselves. So I knew where she was coming from, which is why I was able to not get that upset when she was yelling at me in the ER. But it was a good lesson for me because it was fairly early in my career that people are just different when they're going through these horrible, scary experiences. And you can't really judge them just on that alone. And it was a good lesson for me over the rest of my career to really listen to moms and try and be more compassionate and understanding with them. And she told me that they had all in the GI lab had, had called her daughter the Christmas tree baby that year. So I just always, at Christmas time, think about the Christmas tree baby. And I don't know whether I saved her life or not, but I did feel that it was precious to learn a lesson for me early enough in my career that it could make a difference in how I listened to and treated moms. Well, thank you, Trish, for sharing that very special Christmas memory with all of us. Our next guest is a voice that, well, it might be familiar to you because it's Dr. Walt Larimore, family physician, author, well-known speaker, and he's been a frequent guest with me on the podcast. He joined us to share about a patient encounter on Christmas Day that impacted the way he practiced medicine, and ultimately, it started Walt on his journey to share his faith with his patients. Walt, take it away. Hi, everyone. I'm Walt Laramore. I'm a family physician in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And a number of years ago, my partner in practice, Rick Pierce, and I were sharing a moment and a cup of coffee the week before Christmas when he said this. He said, I want to talk to you about Evan. And I cocked my head and I said, Evan? And he explained, well, haven't you met him? He's an older man, I guess 60 or so, and he and his partner own the art and flower shop over in Dillsboro, his next town over. And I responded, well, I bet Barb's been there, but I don't think I ever have. Well, I was curious. I said, who's his partner? Do I know her? And Rick slowly took a sip of coffee and said, well, I would guess not. Evan's partner is actually a guy whose name is Richard. 
a guy, I asked. Yep, Rick, Rick answered. He said, they live in Whittier, and, and I think they're pretty well accepted in that area, although I'm not so sure they'd be well accepted here in Swain County. I nodded and, and took a sip of coffee. Anyway, Rick continued, Evan is concerned about his health. He's been losing some weight and has some funny-looking moles developing on his legs. He asked me to look at them. Well, I've never seen anything like it. The lesions were symmetric on both legs. They look like purplish papules. Gosh, Rick, when I, I think of purplish papules, I often think of lichen planus or lymphatoid papulosis or something like that. Me too, Rick exclaimed. But these just look different. Can you think of any sort of special rashes that occur in homosexuals? Well, frankly, this was several decades ago, but I had never cared for a homosexual, at least none that I knew of, through all of my training in the 70s. Other than sexually transmitted disease, I don't think I know of any, I said. Rick nodded and continued, me neither. I told Evan the same thing, but I also told him I thought a lesion should be biopsy for safety's sake, just to be sure it's not some sort of melanoma or something like that. And he's decided to come over here and let me do it. We were quiet a second, both developing in our minds what doctors call a differential diagnosis. And when a doctor sees a patient, the first two steps that we typically take are take a history and then perform an exam. And with this information, we can come up with a list of possible diagnoses. And usually I would try to think of the most common diagnosis or diagnoses that would fit the history and exam and any tests that have been in order. But at the same time, I have been always taught to think of the worst possible diagnosis or diagnoses. Uh, the goal was not to miss something bad in its earliest stages. In Evan's case, the worst diagnosis I could think of was some form of cancer. And I knew Rick was thinking the same thing. For internal cancers to cause an unexpected loss of weight and fatigue, as well as to have some sort of cutaneous stigmata or cutaneous signs just wasn't unusual. Rick, I think it's a compliment that he's willing to come over here. Seems like most folks in that area get their care in Silver or Waynesville or even maybe travel to Asheville. They tend to go to bigger cities, not little towns like ours. Rick said, I agree, but it seems like folks are more willing to stay here for their care than they used to be. And I think that's good. I nodded and we finished our coffee and began seeing our patients. Then the day before Christmas morning, I was on call for our practice. And after I'd finished seeing patients uh, that morning in the office, I was dictating charts when the phone rang and it was Louise, the nurse over at the ER. And I greeted her with, hey, Louie, when I picked up the phone. And boy, did she fuss at me. Dr. Laramore, don't you start with no hi, Louie, to me. You need to learn to respect your elders. <laughs> well, Louise Thomas had run the ER at Swain County Hospital forever. And the local doctors for more years than most folks could remember, respected, admired her and said yes, ma'am, to her. <laughs> well, she continued without a breath between sentences. In the meantime, I've got a patient here with a pretty bad pneumonia. He's got a temperature of 102 degrees, a productive cough, a terribly low white blood cell count, shortness of breath, low oxygen level. The respiratory tech is down here now, and I've got him on oxygen. She tossed to take a breath, and then she continued. The patient's an older white man. He's skin and bones. I think he needs to be in the ICU. Well, I agreed and gave Louise the admission orders. I wanted him cultured up and started on high-dose antibiotics. Does he have any family, I asked. 
And she and I, I think both knew that this probably represented some sort of end-stage cancer. Louise said, not that I know of, just, just a friend who brought him in. And loners coming to the hospital were not all unusual there in the Smoky Mountains. And loners who came to the doctor only after their disease process was pretty far along were pretty common. You see, to most of the mountain people, the hospital was a scary place. They would all tell me they knew people, friends and neighbors who would come to the hospital only to die. The result was that instead of coming in early in their disease process, when treatment and sometimes cure was at least possible, the locals would often wait to come in until it was too late for us to help them. I said, well, I'll be up to see him just as soon as I'm done with patients. Is that okay? Sounds good, Dr. Laramore. I'll let you know if you need to get up here any quicker. And Louise paused. And what? I inquired. And you can leave your smarty side down there in the office before you come up here to my ER. And before I could, before I could answer, she hung up. Well, when I arrived at the hospital, I first went to the x-ray suite. Carol Stevens, head of radiology, was there. He was a great tech, and he headed the x-ray department. And although Bryson City had no radiologists in town, a consulting radiologist from a nearby city came over three days a week to read x-ray studies and to perform procedures like upper GI series, barium enemas, and that sort of thing. In an emergency, a radiologist could be called to travel the 25 or 30 miles to come help us because digital x-rays were not available back then. Well, Carol found the patient's films and put them on the viewing box. Looks like an atypical pneumonia, Walt. But by the look of the patient, I'd guess it's cancer. I nodded. Carol was really good at, at reading films. At, in fact, as good as any radiologist I knew. Thanks, Carol. Best I go take a look at the patient. He's interesting, Doc. I'll tell you that, Carol said. Aren't they all? I thought to myself. When I got to the nurse's station, I was met by Peggy Ashley. Peggy had been at the hospital for years and years. She led the choir at the local Presbyterian church when she wasn't nursing at the hospital. And she was married to Joe, a, a ranger in the Smoky Mountain National Park. Hi, Peggy, I called out as I entered the nurse's station. Hey, Dr. Laramore, you're here to see the new admit to ICU. Yep. Our ICU was really not an ICU. It was just a a former four-bed ward that was converted to care for our sickest patients. It was the closest room to the nurse's station, which was good for the patients and the nurses. Peggy walked over to me and whispered, you going to tell him what he's got? I whispered back, I guess I better figure out what that is first, don't you think? Peggy smiled. It was not unusual for the nurses to know what was going on far before the doctors did. She handed me the chart. The name on the front was Evan Thomas. Now, could this be the Evan that Rick had been talking to me about? As I entered the room, the patient were worse than I could have imagined. He was emaciated. The oxygen had normalized his color, but instantly I knew he was a very, very sick man. Another man was sitting by Evan's bedside as I entered. He stood. Hi, I'm Dr. Laramore. I'm the doctor on call today. I couldn't be more delighted, the visitor explained. My name's Richard White. He pointed to the man in the bed. Evan and I know your partner, Dr. Peretz. He often visits our shop in Dillsboro. We were hoping either of you would be willing to care for us. I now knew that this was the couple Rick had been telling me about. I, I tried not to show any surprise. Richard, Evan, it's good to meet you, I said. And I then turned my attention to Evan, taking a complete history and doing a complete physical. When I was done, I pulled up a chair. I always felt it was better to communicate to patients face-to-face. -face. 
And, and sitting with patients helped me accomplish that. I was never pleased to be around doctors who felt they had to stand over the patient, which always seemed to be like a power thing to me. Evan, I began, I think you know you've got pneumonia. He nodded. But it's not a typical pneumonia. It's atypical. And given your weight loss and fatigue, I need to be honest with you. And I paused for a moment. Evan reached out and took Richard's hand. He looked fleetingly at his partner and then back to me. Is it cancer? I nodded. I'll tell you the truth. That's my guess. We need to do some tests to be sure, but that's exactly what I suspect. Is it treatable, Evan asked? Well, it depends on the type, I replied, but my guess is that it's probably already widespread. So we'll just have to wait and see. He looked straight into my eyes and he said, when can we start? I explained, well, let's get this infection under control and then we'll talk about getting started. I was quiet and let them absorb the information. They continued to hold hands and looked in each other's eyes. And when it was clear they didn't have any more questions, I left the room. The next morning, I, I made early morning rounds, well before Kate and Scott could wake up and we could celebrate Christmas together. I found Evan alone, but awake. I greeted him and sat on the bed. His breathing was labored and shallowed. Evan, how are you feeling? Not so good, Doc. I didn't sleep well. Seems you're breathing harder than last night. I better get Carol to take another x-ray. He's already been here along with Betty the Vampire. <laughs> I smiled at the reference to Betty Carlson, the director of our lab. Let me go take a look, and I'll let you know what I see, okay? He nodded, but, but I sensed there was something on his mind. So I sat back down. Anything else I can do? Anything else you need to ask? I asked. He looked away out the window at, at the darkness surrounding the hospital and then back to me. Doc, I've been told you're a man of faith. I've also been told you're a very good doctor. But I've got to tell you, I was worried about coming over here to see you. Why is that? I asked. Evan didn't answer for a moment, then he looked deeply into my eyes. Doc, lots of Bible thumpers call people like me evil and nasty things. I was kind of worried you might think the same thing. Now it was my turn to be quiet for a moment. I, I was trying not to think about how I might respond to this man's honesty, his transparency, his vulnerability. I took a deep breath and let it out slowly. Evan, my faith teaches me that the most important thing in life is a personal relationship with God and everything else pales in comparison to that. And I found when I, when I began that relationship with God, he was fully able and willing to guide me into doing and thinking his thoughts, his things, the right things. So the real issue isn't what I think or what you think, but what God thinks. Evan smiled, and I saw his eyes begin to mist. Doc, he said, when I was a kid, church was important to me. I, I really enjoyed going, but never more than on Christmas Eve. But when I grew up, I, I just grew away from it. I don't think your God would ever want a relationship with me. In fact, I think he might just be punishing me a bit. For a moment, what popped into my mind was a Bible verse that says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and reverence.
I was pleased that Evan felt comfortable enough to open up with me about what was on his heart. But I had always been taught that it was unethical to discuss religion with patients. However, Evan had asked, in essence, he had given me permission to share with him. So, so I decided to proceed, albeit very carefully. Evan, this much I know for sure. I know God would want to have a relationship with you. The Bible clearly says that God loves each of us. In fact, he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus, not just to be born in a manger, but to live a perfect life for us as an example, and then to die a torturous, excruciating death for us, for all of us, for all of our wrongdoing. Evan, if you're willing to believe that, he's willing to begin that relationship with you today, but only if you want to. Evan looked away out of the window of the ICU. The darkness was beginning to fade a bit as the daylight was just beginning. He whispered, it would be a good day to start. I was quiet for a moment. We looked out the window together. The tears began to flow down his face and he sniffled. And just instinctively, I reached out and I took his hand and he gave my hand a squeeze and then looked back at me. Doc, I've done a lot of wrong things. I guess you Bible thumpers would just call me a pretty bad sinner, huh? He smiled as he wiped his tears with his free hand. I remember smiling back at him. Evan, I said that puts you and me in the exact same crowd. He cocked his head and looked at me. Dr. Laramore, are you are you like me? I answered, I am. You are, he asked? Yes, I am, I repeated. But let me explain. Evan, the Bible explains that the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Evan, it also says in that same exact verse that the greedy and the slander and the gossip and the swindler will not inherit the kingdom of God either. Evan was quiet for a moment, so I continued. Evan, you're a homosexual, and I'm greedy, and I'm a slanderer, and I'm certainly guilty of gossiping more than I should. So according to the Bible, you and I are in the same exact crowd. He smiled, and, and he squeezed my hand. I continued, Evan, the Bible has a lot of names for Jesus, but my favorite is that he was known as a friend of sinners. All he requires from us, if we want to have a personal relationship with him, if we want to be his friend, is for us to simply admit that we've missed the mark, that, that we've sinned, that we've done wrong. Evan nodded. He commented, I guess I would qualify. I smiled and said, me too, Evan. He turned to look out the window once again. The, the sun must have just peeked over the mountains, for the day was quickly getting brighter. I paused to let him think a moment as the tears continued to run down his cheeks. Evan whispered between labored breaths, I think I'd like to be his friend. That would be nice, don't you think? Especially on Christmas Day. He turned and looked me in the eye. Doc, how do I start? I took a deep breath and then explained, actually, Evan, it's pretty easy. You just talk to God. I kind of chuckled. I said, what us thumpers call prayer. Let him know you're ready. Invite him into a relationship with you, into your heart. 
and he will come in. He promised us that. But first you have to realize you've done wrong. Then you have to be willing to trust him with your life and your choices. He nodded, bowed his head, closed his eyes. Lord, he whispered, I begin. Then he opened his eyes, lifted his head, smiled at me, and squeezed my hand. I smiled back. It was the shortest and sweetest prayer I had ever heard. Evan, I said, the Bible says that when we admit to God we've done wrong, just agree with him that we've missed the mark, that he will instantly and eternally forgive our sins, all of them. And based upon that forgiveness, he's willing to become your friend and your Lord and to reserve a room for you in heaven. And the tears began to flow down his cheeks even more. He nodded. I asked him, would you like to see a pastor today to talk a little bit more about this? He smiled, nodded, and squeezed my hand one last time. Evan, I best, I best go check that x-ray, okay? I let go of his hand, stood, and left to go to the x-ray reading room. And on my way back to the ICU, I saw one of the respiratory techs running toward the unit. I walked quickly into the ICU and arrived just in time to see Evan surrounded by nurses and being intubated by the respiratory tech. What happened? I exclaimed. Dr. Larimore, he just had a respiratory arrest. BP, spot him out, bradycardia, okay to get him on a ventilator. I nodded my assent and we went to work. But from there, things went downhill fairly quickly. Evan's pneumonia quickly evolved into ARDS, a severe form of respiratory disease that's very difficult to treat. And then he went into kidney and liver failure. And he died later that same afternoon. The autopsy report confirmed the pneumonia but blamed it on a bacterium I had never treated before, pneumocystis carinii. The report also confirmed multi-organ failure and a rare form of cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma, but said the cancer was only confined to his skin. Evan had not died of cancer. I now know he had died of a disease that was then unnamed, HIV-AIDS. So Evan was my first patient with this horrible disease, but he was also the first patient with whom I shared my personal faith so forthrightly, and he was the first to openly ask me to do so. Looking back over a long career of over four decades in family medicine, Evan's case and his decision represented one of the high points. But what his autopsy did not show and could not show was that Evan died a new man spiritually. He had become a friend of God. He had been born as a son of God on the day that we celebrate the birth of the Son of God. And his life actually began on the morning of the day it ended. And I know I'll see him again one day. And I look forward to getting a big hug for my brother in Christ, Evan. Merry Christmas, Evan, up in heaven. And Merry Christmas to each of you and to those you love. Well, the emotion that I just heard in Walt's voice as he shared Evan's story, even from so many years ago, it well, it was very impactful to me just now. It brought tears to my eyes just thinking about someday 
when Walt will meet this patient in heaven and someday meeting countless other patients who were brought to Christ through CMDA members just like Walt. What an amazing day that will be, friends. Next up is a good friend, Dr. George Gonzalez from California, who is actually CMDA's current president. And a couple of years ago, in the midst of the pandemic, George found himself in a totally different Christmas on-call situation when he became the patient instead of the clinician. Hello, I'm Dr. George Gonzalez. I practice family medicine in Fresno, California. And um, I want to tell you about an un- unexpected uh, vacation that I had, or leave of absence, I should say, uh, in December of 2020 that ended uh, with a sweet, beautiful, intimate Christmas with my wife. It started, I guess, December 1st when my wife was diagnosed with COVID. And at that time, during the COVID pandemic, if you were in contact with somebody with COVID, you were mandated to stay home and away from the public. So if by 10 days you were without illness, then you could return to being in the public. So by uh, December 7th, I began feeling ill with respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, congestion, and realized I had COVID and tested positive. So the next week, I had tried every home remedy there was, and I was hoping that I would get better. But by day nine, I was not any better. In fact, I was significantly worse. I had a a coughing spell that panicked me, and I placed a a pulse oximeter on my finger and saw that my oxygen tension was in the low 80s, and so I called my next-door neighbor, who was an emergency room physician, and asked if they had any oxygen, and they said, uh, you don't need oxygen, you need an ambulance. So I was rushed by ambulance to the hospital. But at that time, during the peak of the pandemic, uh, there was no room in the inn. So I waited outside in the tent for three hours before being transported into the emergency room on the same gurney I was picked up with in my home uh, that I had already been on for over three hours. So the next 24 hours in the emergency room, I was on that same gurney. And I thought I was going to have death by gurney, not by COVID. I uh, was finally admitted when a good friend and chief of surgery came down and saw me in the emergency room. He said, why don't they have a bed for you? Don't they know that you're a physician? And I said, well, I suppose they do. And within an hour, I had a bed. So I was... Uh, placed there in the COVID ward where it was isolated but comfortable. And I realized that oxygen was my dearest friend. I could uh, breathe and I said, if I can wait this out, this would be good. Over the next three days, I was not getting better. And the little fear of the thought that if I don't get better, 
this is it. And I need to be ready to meet my maker. That thought is almost humorous most of the time, but it was real at that time, and it caused me to go into pretty significant self-examination and prayer. I um, prayed to God that if it was time that I'd be ready, and I just wanted a word from him, and the word I received was to be thankful. So in my weakness, with the inability to even move because my oxygen tension would drop if I even moved my limbs, I just was thankful to God for all he had done in the past in my life and for the possible days that he'd give me for the future. So by the fourth day, I had received all the treatments, the remdesivir and the monoclonal antibodies, and IV fluids, the heparin injections and things uh, that were customary at that time without great improvement, but feeling just a little bit better. On, I think it was December 22nd, I uh, was able to take a few steps. And by December 23rd, I was able to make it back and forth to the bathroom. And I realized I was getting better. It was right, I think, on December 22nd or 21st that I uh, had uh, heard uh, that a good friend of mine had um, died in a skiing accident, and it also uh, grieved me that it was so sudden, but that I knew, too, life is short, and we don't know when we would be called heavenward. So it caused me to reflect on the, the verse in Psalms 90.12 that says, Teach me, O Lord, to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom, to use each day as a gift, and to not waste the days given. So, with that refreshed uh, feeling, uh, day by day, I felt like I was getting stronger, and I checked myself out of the hospital on December 24th, still oxygen-dependent, but I knew I could do that at home. So, on December 25th, Instead of having any other family members, it was just me and my wife who had uh, lovingly given me the COVID virus unintentionally. And I we shared a very intimate Christmas, very thankful and rejoicing in God's goodness. So it sometimes takes some suffering to reflect upon the goodness of God and the goodness of your life. And I think that's something that is a gift that a lot of people don't stop and consider. Uh, so it was truly a blessing in disguise and uh, a time of intimacy with the Lord like I've never had, as well as uh, an appreciation for life that I could never have had without being so close to death.
Well, I know Dr. Gonzalez isn't the only CMDA member who has a story like that. Uh, well, especially stories about Christmas during the pandemic. I'm sure a few of you listening uh, have more than one story to tell from the last couple, three years. We do continue to pray for patients and frontline workers who are facing the latest onslaught of COVID and flu and other respiratory cases this Christmas season. Our next Christmas story takes us around the world to Nigeria to a patient desperately waiting to travel to the United States to receive critically needed cardiovascular surgery. I'm Dr. Tina Slusher. I'm a professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota and a pediatric intensivist at Hennepin Healthcare. I've been involved in global health now for about 35 years and much of that time in Sub-Saharan Africa, where this story comes from. So I wanted to tell you about a young lady, Eunice, who I knew from about the time she was born because of her little sister, Buki. Buki was actually the very first child I brought to the U.S. for heart surgery almost 30 years ago now. And Buki actually had a hypoplastic right heart and was able to come to the U.S. for two heart surgeries and scoliosis repair. But her type of heart lesion can't be really corrected, only palliated. And though she fought valiantly and was an amazing witness to all of those, she died in her mid-twenties, again, having fought very hard. Eunice was her little sister, so I met Eunice again as a infant or small girl and followed her through the years, but because she was healthy and because my medicine in Nigeria is largely inpatient, I never saw Eunice as a patient, only as the sibling of Buki and as a friend of the family. But when Eunice got to be beyond high school, she wanted to become a nurse, and we were able to find funding for her to pursue that degree at Bowen University Teaching Hospital. Eunice came to me while she was a student at BUTH with headache and hypertension. And that's where the miracle really starts because I actually did a complete exam, including pulses in her feet. Now, that's a pretty unusual thing to check in a then approximately 17, 18 year old, but because of the hypertension and headache, I think God just prompted me to do that. And I still remember looking over at my long-term pediatric colleague in Nigeria, Dr. Daniel Badaro, because we were in his living room and saying, Badaro, I don't feel any pulses in her feet, do you? And he proceeded to check as well. And neither one of us felt any pulses. And 
a long workup confirmed that Eunice did have a coarctation or narrowing of her aorta and needed surgery. But unlike her sisters, this defect is repairable. So we proceeded after getting several echoes and several consults to ask a cardiologist at Mayo Clinic who agreed with our diagnosis, reviewed all our findings, and agreed to accept her to Mayo Clinic free for the surgery she would need. Well, that's when the major roadblock started. Because Eunice was now a young lady and not a small kid, the American Embassy refused multiple times to give her a visa, saying that, quote, she wasn't sick enough. That was a bit frustrating because this embassy official wasn't a doctor or healthcare provider, but nonetheless, he persisted. And as Eunice got sicker from her narrowing, we got more discouraged and just flat out didn't know what to do. And it was at that point that a Nigerian who had trained in the UK and had come back to Nigeria to start a cardiology center approached us and said he would consider taking Eunice for the procedure she needed and would look for donations to cover the $10,000 stent that she would need to hold her aorta open. And he did. He evaluated her through his foundation, raised the funding to do the procedure, and did that procedure in Lagos, Nigeria successfully. After the fact, I found out that Eunice was only the second case of this procedure being done in Nigeria. And uh, needless to say, I was really grateful for the success of the procedure, but still somewhat mad at the American and the USNBC in Lagos for his refusal to take her. But ultimately, it became clear that God had a bigger plan for Eunice. And after her procedure and after the repair of the coarctation, the same doctor in Nigeria who had done the procedure free invited Eunice back to uh, study to be a cardiology nurse in Lagos, Nigeria. And that's what Eunice is doing right now. She's an, an amazing young lady who loves Jesus. She's really a village girl from a really rural family that didn't have hardly any resources, but an amazing family where Eunice was taught to work hard, study hard, go to church, and love Jesus. And that's what she does. And she's going to be a fantastic cardiology nurse. That's not an opportunity she would have had 
had she had the procedure done in the U.S. She wouldn't have had the opportunity to go on and be a cardiology nurse herself and to be able to help other children and adults with heart problems in Nigeria. And this is truly a miracle and evidence of God's sovereignty and God's direction, even when we seem frustrated. This happened about a year ago, so this is our Christmas miracle. And again, Eunice is studying and has about one more year of her training before she'll be able to work as a cardiac nurse. Well, just hearing Tina Slusher's voice brings back such wonderful memories and puts a big smile on my face because I met Tina about 31 years ago when I was a fourth-year surgical resident doing a two-month elective at Timwick Mission Hospital in 1992. You know, the largest part of my general surgery career was then spent in rural southwest Kenya at that large evangelical, very gospel-focused mission hospital called Tenwick. Our ministry motto over those years was, we treat Jesus heals. So hearing a story like this from Dr. Slusher, it takes me back to 20 very special years of my life and the lives of my wife, Pam, and our four children. The last two were actually born there in Kenya. Well, I found myself on call at Timwick over several Christmas celebrations, and I remember being on call one Christmas Eve at home, enjoying some special time with Pam and our older three children because our youngest, Ashley, hadn't been born yet. And I heard the phone ring. The casualty nurse gave me the news that someone had been cut up with a panga, which is a Swahili word for machete, and they needed my intervention because the injuries were quite extensive. So I traipsed my way up, not in a very good mood, up to the theater, our surgery area, and found a gentleman inebriated, very agitated and upset that he was in the hospital with cuts on his face and his arms, many different cuts. And so I asked him and his family about why this had happened. And essentially, he had become a rather obnoxious, drunken man in the local city of Beaumet and uh, had ticked somebody off that had a sheathed machete. And that individual went after him and cut him up on Christmas Eve, all of it because he was drunk and obnoxious. And so as I began the next two to three hours working on his face and on his arms and multiple different lacerations, trying to be as good of a plastic surgeon as I could be, I became more and more incensed that this man who had shown no self-control on Christmas Eve and got himself drunk, he was a chronic alcoholic, had totally interrupted my Christmas Eve celebration with my family. And I, I was quite irritated, probably said some not so kind things to him as we were working under local anesthesia and finished up after a couple of hours. It was after midnight by the time I finished. And I was walking home from the hospital and the Holy Spirit began to 
work on me that this was Christmas. It was a time of joy and that God had sent his son and I was a recipient of incredible mercy. And as I'm walking the last hundred feet up to my porch, I gazed up, which I frequently did in the middle of the night, walking home from many, many calls and looked up and there, as usual, was the Southern Cross. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, we don't get to see the Southern Cross, but in Kenya, it goes across the night sky, and between 12 midnight and 2 a.m., there it is, night after night on the clear nights. And on that particular night, Christmas Eve, I looked up, saw the Southern Cross, and the Holy Spirit finally finished his work in my heart that I have received so much grace and mercy. What business do I have being so judgmental? And I thought of the scripture, James chapter 1, verse 20, that says, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And I had been so upset that evening because of a disruption of some special family time. And I realized that I needed a savior just as badly as that drunken, brawling Kipsigese man up in the minor theater that evening. Well, my indignation over the interruption and anger over his violence under the influence that had led to his injuries was just as sinful in my father's eyes. You know, James later wrote in chapter two that we should speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the perfect law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm so grateful for a visible reminder in the sky that night in the Southern Hemisphere that Southern Cross at midnight, that Christmas Eve in Kenya, to remind me, a missionary surgeon, why I was called and what made my service possible, that Jesus' very own wounds had healed and continue to this day to heal my judging, proud, sometimes Pharisee-like heart. Well, from all of us here at CMDA, I want to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. Let me close with the words of an angel to the shepherds from Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Whether you find yourself on call in the hospital or making rounds in the emergency room or on the patient floors, in the operating room, dealing with patient medical records, or if you happen to have the day off and are spending it with family. I hope this week's episode reminded you that you can share the good news of God's great joy this Christmas, no matter where you are. I pray that images like that Southern cross in the sky for me in the middle of the night will appear on your radar this Christmas reminding you that our mandate as followers of Christ in healthcare is to be bringing the hope and healing of Christ to our world this Christmas. That's what matters to CMDA, friends. And CMDA, your CMDA, matters. Merry Christmas, CMDA. We'll see you next week for our final 2023 program, God willing.
This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate. And I do want to take the opportunity once again, can't say it enough, great appreciation for Mandy Morin, who's our Director of Communications, for producing this, setting up all the interviews, and gather the information each week. And then our sound engineer, Rusty Sluter, who's behind the window, keeping me straight week after week. God bless you, Rusty and Mandy. Thank you for 2023. A great job.